chapter 22. Let's look at the first sentence, the first Samuel chapter 22, and we'll get started this morning. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to come and worship you. Father, we pray that this very morning you would have your way with us. God, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would encourage us. Father, that we would be taught from your word this morning. God, that it would be applicable, relevant, Lord, to our day and our time, to each and every individual that uh, was willing to get up this morning and come to the house of God to worship you and to hear your preached word. Lord, I pray that you'd anoint me now to preach in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Ghost. God, not in my own strength or my own wisdom, but Lord, would You anoint me from heaven, Father, to do what only You can, Father. God, we pray that Your Word would go forth this morning and penetrate our hearts. Lord, that it would, uh, that it would give birth to fruit that would grow in us and then out of us, Lord. Father, we pray if there be any here this morning who are not truly saved, God, that today You would open their eyes and they would see the need to repent and run to You and find salvation in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray this morning for Your way. We acknowledge that only You really know what we need. God, we don't know what we need, Father, but You do. And so we ask this morning that You would give us what we need. God, You would teach us as we need taught. You would break us where we need broken. God, You would strengthen us where we need strengthened. Lord, that You would have Your will. We ask that, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying David and Saul. We've been studying kings. And I want to say this morning again, before I really get into the text, that if you this morning are a blood-bought, born-again child of God, you have been made a king or queen for the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has invested authority in you, His authority. And God desires each and every one of you to live a victorious Christian life. And by victorious, I want to qualify that. I believe that God desires to bless His people in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, in every area of our life. But that said, we have to understand that being blessed by God and walking in the authority of God is not so that we can build our little earthly kingdoms that are going to vanish and pass away, but He has invested His authority into us so that we can build His heavenly kingdom so that we can bring honor and glory to Him. And He has invested His power in His people to be kings and queens in the spiritual world to be able to take authority over the forces of darkness that try to strip away our joy, that try to strip away our purpose, that try to blind us from the real reason that we're here, which is to build God's kingdom and to bring sinners to the foot of the cross that they might find salvation in Jesus Christ. This is why God has given us authority. Now, we've been studying this on this sermon series titled, The Hearts of Kings. And we're learning that to be the king, to be the queen that God wants you to be, we must understand there is a dual fight. And as we've been studying Saul and David, we see really there's two kings in all of us. There's a little bit of Saul. He represents the flesh. He represents self. He represents, I'm going to do it my way no matter what. 
I'm only going to do it God's way when it makes sense to me. But when I feel threatened, when I don't understand, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm even willing to kill David if I have to to get my way. That represents the flesh. And as wicked as Saul was, let me say something today. Let us not forget that Saul was a hero at one point in time. That Saul believed in God. That Saul was faithful to God. And it needs to be a stark warning to every one of us to be, the Bible basically says, he who thinks he stands, be, be careful lest he fall. None of us are above failure. And the reason for that is because none of us have escaped this flesh just yet. And the flesh wars against the Spirit. It will never agree with God. So there is a nature in all of us, even if you are born again, child of God, there is a nature in all of us, we will call it the soul nature, that we must be ever cautious not to let take root and not let control us. Because if Saul could do it, you and I could too. None of us are above failure. Now we see that Saul, in the last several weeks, Saul has grown mad. He has just grown psychotically paranoid. He's tried to kill David a handful of times. And last week, as we studied, Saul got so crazy, he tried to kill his own son. Finally, David had to spend his life on the run, which is where we pick up the story this morning. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This would become David's life for quite some time. David would now begin to run and hide for his life, not for a couple weeks, not for a couple months, not for a year till this thing blows over, but for somewhere near ten years. When David finally had to make the official decision to live his life on the run, he was more than likely approximately 20 years old. Might have been 19, 21, 22, but he was a very young man. Now, I want us to see this morning, before we... We're going to go all the way through First uh, Samuel chapter 31 and through the death of Saul this morning. But before we get to the death of Saul... I want us to experience and enter into David's life during this season. God was doing something in David that God did not do in Saul. I want you to think about David's life, right? David, he's just a, he's a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of his brothers. Never in his wildest dreams would he ever think he was going to be the king of Israel. David is out one day doing what he's supposed to do. He's taking care of the sheep. And one of his brothers, his older brothers, comes and yells at him. He says, David, come to the house. Samuel, the prophet of Israel. He's here at the house. And he told us to send for you. And so David comes and he meets Samuel face to face, the prophet of Israel. And Samuel anoints him. David does not fully understand probably the significance of that because Saul was king. But nonetheless, he's anointed of Samuel. And he goes back his way. His dad says during a time of battle, he says, David, why don't you go up and take some food to your brothers and some of the rest of the army? And 
David goes up and he, he sees this Philistine giant named Goliath mocking the armies of Israel. And David says, what's this guy doing mocking us? And what's going to be done for the man who kills this giant? His brothers kind of mock David. And they go back and feed the sheep, boy. The real warriors are taking care of this. David's thinking to himself as he's looking at Goliath, doesn't look like you're taking care of it to me. What's going to be done for the one who kills this man? He makes his way to Saul. And eventually talks Saul into just letting him go after the giant with a sling and some stones. David goes and he looks that giant in the eye. The Bible says he actually runs to him. He wasn't afraid of him. He ran to him. Took that sling, swung it. God took that stone and lodged it deep into the head of of Goliath, he fell on his face, David cut his head off, and all of a sudden, this young shepherd boy becomes Israel's hero. They're writing songs about him. If you read through the next ten chapters of First Samuel, starting in verse 20, you'll see two or three times the enemies of Israel. The enemies of Israel. When they see David, this is what they say of David. Isn't this the one who they wrote that song about? That David has slain his ten thousands and, and Saul his thousands? I mean, everybody knew about David. They knew that he was this victorious warrior who slayed Goliath, cut his head off. And I want you to think, picture yourself, especially you men who like to be heroic. Sixteen years old about when that began. All of a sudden, he has gone from being the shepherd boy to being in Saul's house, to being around royalty, to all the people around singing songs about Him. And God said this, now it's time for me to break you. Because I have a call on your life to be the king over my people, and I have got to break you before you're ready for that. And we're about to enter in today to David's breaking. I want you to understand something, friend. The work of God is real business. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as much as I hate it, as much as you might hate it, God has to break us before we'll ever really be that usable by Him. And getting broke is never fun. Most people turn and run when the breaking comes. Everybody, be honest, who doesn't want to slay Goliath? Who doesn't want to have all the enemies singing songs about how tough you are? But who wants to sign up to live for ten years in a cave running like a dog for your life? God said, this is what it's going to take for me to make you into the man that I want you to be. And so David begins to spend his life in the cave. Saul has just gone mad. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel 22, Saul comes up to the priest. And I want you to see how wicked Saul has become. He comes to the priest Ahimelech. Now, David, previously, a few days earlier, had went to Ahimelech. Now, David did not tell Ahimelech that Saul was trying to kill him. David said he was sent on the official business of the king. He was hungry. And so Ahimelech, Gave him some bread, the showbread, and gave him Goliath's sword because David was unarmed. 
So this is what Saul's talking about in verse 13. Saul said to him, that's Ahimelech, the priest, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse. Can I say these priests had not conspired against Saul at all? They did not know what the deal was. In verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king. He said, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. And here's what Saul said. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king turned to the guards who stood about him. Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew not when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Hey, Saul kills the priest of the Lord now. I'm telling you, the man has gone psychotic. I'll deal with Saul at the end of the sermon when we look at his death. I said it last week. I told somebody last week at the end of the service, I can't wait to get Saul out of the story. Because, man, his life is negative. And I don't like preaching about sin all the time. Sin, 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 sin. But brothers and sisters, we better heed the warning. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will cost you more than you wanted to pay. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. You cannot toy with sin and come out unscathed. This is the lesson of Saul's life. And the man's grown psychotic. He has killed the priest. The man who had problems killing off the livestock of his enemies now has no problem at all slaying all the priests of the Lord. Now look with me at verse 23, chapter 23, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to preach for a little while. These two verses sum up all of chapters 21 through 26. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hands. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness. We have to understand a couple of things this morning. There is always a wilderness God takes us through. First... God delivers you up out of the Red Sea. It, it represents being set free to serve God. You see, Jesus said, No man comes unto the Father unless my Father draws him. You have to be drawn by God. This person, this preacher believes, based on the, the, the Word of God, which tells us God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
I believe that God gives every single person an opportunity to get saved. Most people reject that opportunity. Several of you here this morning, under the sound of my voice, have probably rejected that opportunity and yet think you're saved. But there is a wilderness. And it's in the wilderness where you'll find out what you're really made of. I've said it a bunch of times in this sermon series so far. I've said it once this morning already, and I'll say it again. Anybody can serve God when you're on top of the mountain. Anybody can hang in there when everything's going right, when everybody's on your side, when everybody thinks you're doing good, when people are calling you and telling you how much they appreciate it when you're there. All of us can make it in those circumstances. But you'll never really know if you're committed to God until all those things are removed. And when the only motivation you have to be faithful is that He is God. And until you're faithful with no motivation other than He is God, you haven't really surrendered like you need to surrender. And God will take us through the wilderness to find out what we're really made of. You'll read in John chapter 3 that John the Baptist baptized Jesus that the Spirit of the Lord descended upon Him visibly as a dove. And that He came up out of that water that a voice thundered from heaven, This is My Son, and whom I well please. It is the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. And the very next verse in John chapter 4, or Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Thank you. The very next verse says this, Then He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. You see, until a man can rule his own spirit, until a man can rule his own self, he's never in a position to rule anyone else. And there is a great breaking that must occur in all of us if we're going to become the men and women that God wants us to be. Saul was unwilling to endure it. Saul dug his heels in and he said, I will stay strong. I will not break. I will not be defeated. I will not ever look weak. I will be in control at all times. And anybody that comes against me, I will destroy them. David. God's anointed king is now living in the caves. Saul's hunting his life from day to day. I want you to think about this experience. I have a picture of one of the caves that David likely hid in. I meant to have it this morning for you to, to see it. The, the area that David was in was unbelievable terrain. I mean, you'd have to be in pretty good shape to live your life out in this terrain. And understanding the area as I studied it made a whole lot more sense to me how David could hear dogs. I mean, that's close. How David could hear the dogs that hunted his life. How David could get so close at times. How Saul could get so close at times to David and not catch him. Because this terrain is rugged, crazy terrain. Caves. 
up in the side of rocks. Now here's where David spent his life for many years. The cave. There's something eerily similar about all of them. They're cold, wet, dark, and stagnant. Doesn't matter which cave you're in. They're all the same. Pretty hopeless place to live. I mean, the cave became David's castle. That's where he found his protection. Sleeping on rocks. I thought about listing every single place up here that David was over that period of ten years. It's unbelievable. He was on the move all the time. It's not like he was somewhere for two and a half years and then had to up and move because he heard Saul was on the run. I mean, this guy was constantly on the run. Think about being in a cave. I want you to try to become David just for a moment. Think about being in a cave. And you know that the king, with all of his authority and all of his power, has sent 3,000 men to sniff you out with their dogs, find out where you are, and kill you on the spot. And imagine you're, you're sleeping, but not very deep, because you're, you can't sleep very deep, because you're terrified. And you're laying there in the dark, and then you hear it. There's dogs barking, and they're close. And you wonder to yourself, is this going to be the day these dogs find me? And you're thinking, God, help me just live another day to go find another cave. God, help me out of this cave to go find another cave. I want to ask you a question. Does that sound like the life of a king to you? Does that sound like the life of God's anointed to you? One of the most important lessons I could ever teach people of ministry and brothers and sisters, all of us are supposed to be people of ministry to some extent. One of the most important things I could teach people of ministry, ministry is not always easy. Not everybody's going to be on your side. Sometimes it's lonely. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's damp. And sometimes there are people who send the dogs to look for every single thing about you they can to nip at your heels and take you down. And sometimes all you can do about it is say, God, you're going to have to protect me. I can't fight this battle. I can't fight this fight. This is you. And only you can do this. David was learning not to take matters into his own hands. That's what breaking does. Breaking teaches us, I'm not in control. Breaking teaches us, I'm not going to be like everybody else. You see, David had learned not to fight for his own glory, which is what Saul was doing. Saul was fighting for his own glory. God, we have to remember this, brothers and sisters. God has not called us to fight for our own glory. He has called us to fight for His 
He has called us to stand up for His glory. This is not my battle. This is not about me. It's not about Crossway Church. It's not about you. It's not about any single person. It's about Jesus Christ. And when we start feeling like the whole purpose is to stand up for ourselves and to protect our glory and to, and to, to protect ourselves, we have fallen trapped to the inner soul that lies within. And it can be so subtle. Because like Saul, we can say, well, I'm God's king. And, and, and if I'm defeated, then it makes God look bad. And we'll come up with every weasel excuse to fight for our glory instead of just lay down humbly and say, God, it ain't about me. If I have to live in a cave and run like a dog, I'll do it. But I'm not going to become like everybody else. You see, this was what God was doing in David. God was just reaching in there and taking the Saul out of David. David, don't fight for yourself. I'll take care of you. You just trust me. One year, two years, three years, four years. You still trust me, David? It's been four years and you're still in a cave. You still trust me? Did I not anoint you king over Israel? Did I not tell you I have a plan for your life? Did I not send Samuel himself to look you in the eyes and tell you that you would sit on the throne? Okay, don't take matters into your own hand, David. I have a plan and I know what I'm doing. And though you might not understand it now, though it might not make sense today, What you're going through now is actually part of getting to the throne. Because when you're on the throne, it's not about you. When you're on the throne, it's about everybody else that I want you to care for. And until you have been broken, and until you know what the the common people experience, and until you know what it feels like to be fearful of the king, you won't be ready to be king. Because I don't need another Saul to rule over my people. I need a man after my own heart with compassion and mercy and grace and love. And in order for that to happen, David, I'm going to have to break you. And you're going to have to to prove to yourself that the Saul in you is dead. And that you will not take matters into your own hands no matter how fearful you become. But that you will trust Me always. Five years... Six years. Seven years. We are such a... wimpy people nowadays. We live in a culture with a cut-and-run mentality. If you're offended, just leave. Somebody hurt your feelings, just go. You don't like the way this looks or the way that works, just leave. If you're not getting petted on the back and cared for and tended to, call it quits. We've got to toughen up. We've got to understand I'm doing what I do because God is faithful. I love being with you all and worshiping God. I love coming to church. I really do. This is one of my favorite things to do in my whole life. But I want you to understand something. If none of you showed up, I'd still be here. Because I was a wretch. Broken and undone. A God-hating, 
sin-worshipping, horrid person. Worthy of death. A hopeless drug addict. A hopeless drug dealer. A man with little care for anybody in the world but myself. And the God of heaven and earth reached down to where I was and loved me when I didn't deserve it. He changed me forever. He put His Spirit within me. He gave me and secured me a home in heaven. He changed my life forevermore. And brothers and sisters, if I can't show up and worship God, if I can't be faithful in the cave, if I can't leave these doors and be faithful to God out there too, then something is wrong with my heart. And my sight has grown dim and I have forgot why I am what I am. God was teaching David. David, you've got to trust me at all times. And I must confess, it's not fun. But trust God in the cave. It's not fun. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes God takes you there on purpose to teach you what you could only learn there. Isn't it really easy for me to preach about this and for us to say, wow, that makes sense. I can see how God did that in David. But the moment we feel back into the cave, we're ready to kick our way out and come out and beat everybody that's put fortune is there. It's easy to talk about it, but I'm telling you, living there is hard. We have to be faithful to God and trust God in that place. God, I know what you're doing. You're breaking me. We have to be willing to make it in the wilderness before we'll ever be able to mature and grow into the people that God wants us to be. So David spent his life in the caves. We find that in chapter 24, Many of you know the story, but beginning in verse 5, in chapter 24, Saul, has he's on the hunt for David, as he is every day. And Saul has actually come into a cave. And in that cave is where David and his men are. But see, they're being deathly quiet, and they're back into the dark, as they have many, many times before, just thinking, I hope Saul and his group go. God, don't let these dogs get a whiff of our scent. David goes into the very cave, or excuse me, Saul goes into the very cave where David and his men are. Now David and his men, David's men are saying this, David, God has given Saul into your hands. Kill him. Then we don't have to run anymore. You can be king. Saul had taken off his robe. David went over and cut a little piece of it off and went back. And Saul put his robe back on on his way out. And and David let Saul go his way. Now, I want us to look at verse 5 through 9. Now, it happened afterward that David's heart was troubled because he had cut Saul's robe. Isn't that interesting? His heart was troubled. David felt, even after cutting Saul's robe, that that was too much. David was a man after God's own heart. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm telling you, that heartbeat radiated in David. He didn't like living on the run. None of us do. But he wasn't willing to harm Saul. And in verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. David understood something that each and every one of us have to understand. If God has willed it, it will come to pass as we stand faithful on God's Word. It might take a while. God works in different timetables than we work with, but He's never late. He's always right on time. David understood something. I won't have to connive. I'm not going to have to bend the rules. I'm not going to have to be tricky. I'm not going to have to be sneaky. I'm not going to have to kill God's people. I'm not going to have to do anything to get to the throne. If God wants me to be on the throne, if God has anointed me to be on the throne, all I have to do is be faithful to God no matter what, and in God's time, God will get me there. Brothers and sisters, what a great lesson from David himself that we need to learn. We don't need to be conniving. We don't need to be sneaky. We don't need to be dishonest. We don't need to be slight-handed. We don't need to be double-tongued. We don't need to do anything to be advanced by God. And if you haven't been advanced where you think you should, maybe it's concerning ministry, could be a position at your job, could be the way your family views you. There's, there's a lot of ways that we as people feel like God wants us to be elevated to a certain position. But you can trust this. If it is God, and if God has willed it, you don't have to break the rules to bring it to pass. David was a man of integrity. The same basic thing happens a time later in chapter 26. In verse 4, David sent out spies and understood that Saul was coming. So David arose came to the place where Saul had encamped. Now, if you read the story in the next few verses, you'll find that David went down to where Saul and his men were while they were sleeping. And he took Saul's water jug and Saul's spear. Now, the Bible tells us that Saul's spear was right next to his head. So, they got close. This was not, you know... All their armor was over here and they snuck over and took a few pieces of armor. Now, they got close. David took their stuff, went way up on top of the mountain, and then yelled down and woke them up. At first, he teased Saul's uh, armor bearer a little bit and said, uh, you're not protecting your king so well. This is his spear and this is his jug. And even here, David would not strike 
Saul. David refused to become Saul. Many of David's men questioned, why do you let Saul live? This is the second time. In one of these two scenarios, Joab, who was sort of the head of of David's, kind of like David's commander underneath of David, Joab basically stormed off. He said, David, what are you doing? We have been running like madmen for years from Saul. And you could have killed him and you could have put an end to this. And you did not. I'm going to paraphrase what David basically said. He basically said this, Joab, I will not become Saul. I will not do the things that that man does. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I will not speak a negative thing about the man. If God wants me to make it to the throne, then God will get me there. But I will not turn into the same murderous person that's trying to defend his kingdom as Saul is. And Joab, like the most of the church, said, well, that's just stupid. Fine, David, just run your life getting ran over. A lot of times even our friends and our families don't understand what true humility looks like. What a willingness to trust God and say, I'm not going to avenge myself. I'm not going to go fight somebody and tear them down and character assassinate them because they're trying to kill me. I'm just going to be faithful to God. And in that moment, as Joab and the rest of the men think, David, what's wrong with you? God looking down from heaven and saying, no, no. This is what's right with him. He's just about ready to lead my people. He's learned to trust me and not take matters into his own hands every time he's threatened. He's learned to be faithful to me even in the cave. He's learned that even if the opportunity does present itself and it can look right, it's still wrong to take matters into his own hands. And this man, a man after my own heart, has been broken. And now God says it's time for me to handle Saul. You see, the only reason that Saul reigned for so many years, it's not because Saul was powerful. The only reason that Saul reigned for so many years after God had told him that his kingdom would be ripped away from him is because God was working on the king to come. That's why. But once David had made it through the cave and come out on the other side a better man, God said, now it's time for me to get rid of Saul. Turn with me to chapter 31 as we look at the destruction of Saul. And as you're turning there, I want to say one last thing about the cave. 
It is through David's experience during that period of life that David wrote some of the most beautiful songs and psalms that have comforted the brokenhearted for thousands of years. It was in those places where David would sing his songs and they would echo at the night hours inside of that cave that David would become one of the greatest ever healers of broken hearts. Songwriters to those who are discouraged and in despair. When you understand what David went through literally for ten years, it'll change the way you read the Psalms. When we read through them, it's, it's very symbolic. And no doubt it was symbolic to David too. But it was much more literal to him than it was other than it is to us. David said, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. David knew that. This wasn't just symbolic to him. He leads me beside the still waters. I wonder how many nights over that nearly ten years he slept near a cave where he could hear trickling water coming out and the waters soothed him as he thought about the fact God's going to take care of him. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me, Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. He said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. What did He say? all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm telling you, the man wrote it in a time of his life when it was chaotic. When all of us, if we were watching his life in some modern day reality TV show, we didn't know anything about him. We didn't even know his name. There wouldn't be one single one of us that would say, well, that's God's anointed king right there. But he was as he patiently waited on God. Now we see Saul's tragic end. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Milkeshua, Saul's sons. Then the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. I want to read verse 6 again. It is an absolute tragic verse. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together 
that same day. When I was studying this, something pierced my heart twice because it actually says in, in verse 2, his sons, and then in verse 6, his three sons. That pierced my heart when I read that. The Bible doesn't really tell us much about the other two sons that died, but we do know that Jonathan thought his, son, that his father was a madman. We do know that Jonathan saw God's favor upon David. I can't help, I just, I couldn't get it off of my mind and my heart as I thought about Saul's sons. And I thought about, I wonder if any of them even wanted to be on that battlefield. They're terrified of their psychotic dad. He'd already tried to kill Jonathan. Now, Jonathan was the oldest son. Jonathan was the one who was the rightful heir to the throne. And if Saul's willing to try to kill the oldest boy, generally the way it works, the younger sons are going to be fearful too. And I just thought, what a terrible story. I, I, I wish the story ended better. Don't you? Don't you wish that chapter 31 started out with, Saul came to his senses and realized all of his wickedness and fell on his face before God and repented and turned the throne over to David and Saul followed God the rest of the days of his life. I wish that was the story. We've got to be honest though. It's not. And unfortunately, so many in our culture think they can live their life like Saul. And maybe we're not as wicked as Saul. That might be an exaggeration. But think that they can have unrepented sin, live how they want to live, do what they want to do, be selfish when, they, when it pays to be selfish, be dishonest when it pays to be dishonest, and that yet somehow the end of the story is going to turn out all right. It doesn't. And the worst part of the story, I mean, it just pierced my heart as I was studying this. It doesn't just say that Saul died. His sons died. They all died. They're together on the battlefield. Dad, what you do matters. Mom, what you do matters. There is no figure more influential in the life of children than their parents. And what we do as moms and dads is so crucially important. The lesson is this. Our compromise does affect our children. It does. Don't you wish it didn't? Don't you wish, I, I know I do, the times that I mess up as a father, the times I fail as a Christian, the times I just fail as a man. I wish it didn't affect my children. That's what I wish. That somehow God would take it and put it over here in a box with me and just discipline me and it wouldn't affect anyone else in my life and it's just me and God. I, I wish that was the case. But it's just not true. When I blow it, it affects everybody I'm connected to. Now, thank God for grace. Thank God for mercy and forgiveness. Thank God that we can turn and that we have an advocate in, in Jesus Christ and that He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins. Thank God for that. 
Oh, but let us not use that as an excuse to sin. Because our sins do affect our families. There is no reverse button. There is no time machine. There is no do-over in the life of Saul. And it ended in a total tragedy where not only he but his sons were destroyed. God help us to be men and women, fathers and mothers of integrity, who are building up our children, who are living lives that they can look at us and see what Christ-likeness looks like. Let our children hear what they should do by, uh, by listening to us. Let them see what they should do by looking at us. And let us not be forever guilty of saying, well, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Do you understand something? That statement makes a little bit more sense to us adults. But to a child, it doesn't make sense. They they don't, the whole idea of seeing Jesus, they don't understand. They don't understand that yet. They're not great readers. They don't know the Bible. I'm telling you, what children see and and, and their perception of Jesus is what they see in you and I. I was thinking, this was VBS week and Kevin and Kelly had one of their grandkids here. And I was thinking about kids, they retain what we tell them and they're trying to learn. But it was such a perfect picture of yet how how difficult it is for them to grasp truth. And uh, their grandson, Grant, was talking about all the armor of God, because this was armor of God week. This was, uh, you know, the knights, uh, and, we, and it was, uh, what was the thing called? Kingdom Chronicles. And he was talking about all the belt of truth, shield of faith, and he said, and the helmet of starvation. <laughs> For three days. Man, he'd been hearing about the armor of God. He'd been listening. He'd been paying attention. And he's putting on the helmet of starvation. Hey, trying to tell a child, don't look at me, look at Jesus, that they, they cannot even comprehend that. And so, dads and moms, let us own the responsibility to be godly parents who live lives that can be good examples to our children so that our children don't die on the battlefield too. Ultimately, Saul died on the battlefield of fighting for himself. I want you to think about that. Too many people die on the battlefield. I mean spiritually too. In the church. Hey, even if you're right, man, you don't always have to have the last word. Can I tell you, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm preaching to you about my own life experiences. I'd like to think that I've grown up a lot since I started pastoring at 26 years old. I'd like to think that over the next 10, 15, 20 years, I'll be able to mature three, four, five times more than I am now. But I'm telling you, there was a time in my life I didn't understand that I did not have to fight everybody that I felt was against me. There was a time in my life that I had to to have the last word. I had to make sure everybody understood my point of view. And I've had to grow and mature and understand. It doesn't matter. You're not fighting for yourself, Joplin. God did not call you to pastor to stick up for yourself. You didn't do anything. This is what David learned. You didn't do anything to become king. 
Joplin, you didn't do anything to become pastor. You don't have to do anything to stay pastor. God's the one who anoints. God's the one who calls. You just be faithful to God at all times, no matter what. Saul, on the other hand, he died on the battlefield trying to protect his own glory. Saul's rise and downfall can teach us a handful of practical lessons. I'm going to share them very briefly with you this morning as we close. David's kingdom is now on the rise. David has passed the test of a life lived in the cave. Saul has died and David will soon officially, politically, take over the throne that God anointed him for nearly 12 years earlier. But as we close today and Saul moves off the pages of our story, as Saul becomes part of history, let us look at six quick things, practical lessons we can learn from Saul's life. Number one, great sins often start out as small matters. None of us, including Saul himself, I skipped the story of Saul going after the witch of Endor to call up the spirit of Samuel. None of us ever would have pictured Saul going to witches to get information. But he did. Great sins often start out as small sins. Impatience, compromise, and excuse-making were Saul's main three small sins. Impatience. Hey, when we are impatient, it leads to bad decisions. God was making David patient, wasn't He? Ten years. Man, I've only been saved for a little over 13 years. I cannot imagine... Had I lived the last ten years in a cave, I just I can't I can't imagine that. Run from my life. I can't but I'm telling you, this is this is not symbolic. This is the real deal history of David's life. God help us to be patient and trust God. See, Saul was impatient. And it led to his downfall. He compromised. He said, Yeah, I know God has said. Lord, this morning, may Your Spirit convict us in our hearts of compromise. We are some of the most compromising people. Oh, I know I serve God and I go to church and I love Him in this, but everybody else does this and that and I won't have any friends if I don't compromise here and I won't have a life if I don't compromise here. And we, we, we make excuses for our compromise, which is what Saul did. When Samuel finally confronted him on it, and said, Saul, why have you not obeyed God? Saul said, well, I have. But technically, I mean, if you want to get real technical about it, what do you mean, have I not obeyed God? Have you ever had anyone else get real technical with you about obedience? Is it a sin to do this or a sin to do that? Come on. It starts out small. A little bit of impatience. A little bit of compromise. A little bit of excuse making. But leads to great sins. Number two. Unrepented sin in our lives always grows from bad to worse. 
Saul hoped, as do all of us, when we refuse to repent of our sins, that it will eventually just blow over. But I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to acknowledge it's wrong. I'm not going to acknowledge it's sin. But I'm just going to keep going about my way. And down the road, it will be history. Unrepented sin grows from bad to worse. We've got to repent of our sins. Number three, if we're not right with God, we won't get along with God's people. One of the first signs that you're really not right with God is that you don't want to come to church and you don't want to be around God's people. You know why? It's because we don't want to hear what's right. That's the bottom line. We don't want to be told. I've been there. I've been in the in the place before where I thought... You know, I just don't, I don't want to go. I don't want anyone to tell me I'm wrong. I don't want anyone to tell me that this needs to change in my life. I, don't, I, I just want to do what I want to do, and I don't want any accountability. And when we're not right with God, we won't get along with God's people. Number four, natural gifts and abilities mean nothing without the power of God. Saul had the order for king. The man was a head taller than everybody else. He was a big man, strong man, looked like a king. Had the authoritative mentality and role, but he died on the battlefield. His kingdom was ripped away from him. We have to understand, you take, no matter how perfect you are, no matter how big you may think you are, no matter if you might be King Saul, a head taller than everybody else, spiritually speaking, literally speaking, whatever. You might be the smartest man on the block. You might have all this wisdom or information. You might have all the education in the world. But listen, without God, we have nothing. And you take all of that, and it's still not enough to do God's work. It's still not enough to do what God's called us to do. That's why Paul said, not many noble, not many wise, according to the flesh, are called. It's not because God doesn't use noble people. It's not because God doesn't use wise men. It's because most people that are noble and wise are too stuck up and arrogant to admit that they need help. And God doesn't use stuck up and arrogant people who don't think they need God's help. And we learn this about Saul. Your natural gifts and abilities mean nothing without the power of God. We need God. I want to say to you people of ministry, you know what can happen? And I'm telling you, I know because this is what I do for life. I'm talking from my own experience. We can get so good at doing what we do that we forget to depend upon the power of God to do it. You know, I've put together a sermon thousands of times. I've preached thousands of times. If we're not careful, we'll just open up the book, try to find something to preach, put the thing together and show up and preach and think that something great's going to happen. No. Sunday school teachers, singers, people of ministry, anything that you do for God, we need God's anointing and we need God's power and we need God's help to do it. And if we don't and we just try to do it in our own strength, it'll ultimately come to nothing. We see this about Saul. Fifth, 
There is never, was never, and will never be a substitute for obedience. This was ultimately the thing that brought Saul's downfall. It was the disobedience concerning the Amalekites. And it was in that situation that Samuel made the statement that to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For disobedience, Samuel said, is as the sin of witchcraft. Do we realize how serious it is to be obedient to God? I want to ask each of you this morning to just for a brief moment honestly examine your own heart. Do you categorize sins and say, well, this ain't that big of a deal if I'm disobedient here? Because at least I'm obedient in the bigger areas. Do you make excuses for disobedience in your life? Let us... Learn from the warning of Saul so that we don't have to learn from our own downfalls and our own mistakes. Let us learn from Saul's life that there is never a time for disobedience. That there is no substitute for obedience. What does that mean? It means that you can't say, well, I wasn't obedient, but I'll do this. There aren't scales out there where... You weren't obedient in a certain area, so you're going to try to throw stuff on the scales over here to equal them out. There's no substitute for it. God wants us to trust Him and to follow Him as David did, even in the cave. And finally, if I was to sum up the life of Saul in one sentence, it would be Romans 8.6. To be carnally minded is death. You see, this is where Saul's life led. Death. Saul was incredibly carnally minded. All that he thought about was his own kingdom. I'll ask our worship team to come. All that he thought about was his own kingdom. All that he thought about was his own thing. He was willing to kill others that stood in the way. He knew, he he acknowledged it several times. He knew that David was God's man. He told David, I know that God's with you. He was terrified of David because of it, yet he was willing to kill him. Because being carnally minded is so blinding. We become so inward focused when we're carnally minded. All we think about is my world. How does this affect me? Saul became so carnally minded, he didn't care how it affected his kids. Didn't care if he had to grab the spear and thrust it through his own son. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Two things today. Be faithful in the cave. Know that there is a breaking. You really find out what you're made of when you go through the breaking. Can I tell you the truth? Can I just be honest and share my heart with you? I understand this principle of the breaking 
And I understand that you have to be able to go through it before you'll ever really be great for God. And in my life, when I look for the type of people that I plan on a lifelong ministry with, I wait to see how people behave in the cave. Everybody's ready to be partners up when we're all on the mountain. But I wait to see how you are in the cave. Do you run? Do you cry? Do you complain? Do you decide you're going to pick up your toys and go home? Do you decide you're going somewhere else? Do you decide you're not going to be faithful to God for a while to try to teach God a little lesson? God does not taught lessons by our disobedience. Sometimes we're like little kids. I don't know about your kids. Sometimes we're like my little kids. When they're mad, they're going to teach Dad a lesson. They're going to pout, right? And sit on the floor and not be happy. That'll teach me. No, it won't. And we're that way with God, though, sometimes. You know, we're mad. Somebody's hurted us. Somebody's wounded us. So, we're, just, we're going to be disobedient for a while. Teach God. Well, I look to see how people behave in those moments of life. To find out, because we go through them. We go through them. And to be great for God and to be the man or woman of God that God wants you to be, we have to be willing to be faithful in those moments, friends. To be faithful in the cave. And number two, let us learn from the life of Saul. Let our life not become the same tragic end because we refuse to repent of sin. Father, I pray that you move all across this room in Jesus' name. So you thought you had to keep